Welcome back to Season 2 of Fried Egg Stories. This episode on Bobby Clampett and the golfing machine is brought to you by Precision Pro Golf Range Finders. So today's story is about the quest to get better and more precise on the golf course. And that's actually Precision Pro's area of expertise. Their range finders provide accurate distances that golfers can trust. Fried Egg listeners will receive an extra $20 off any Precision Pro range finder by going to precisionprogolf.com and using the coupon code FRIEDEGG20. That's FRIEDEGG20. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing. Playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it. The dreaded fried egg. Not to be feared, though, it's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. Jared. Hello, how's it going, George? Uh, you can hear me and see me. That's a plus. That's George Pepper. He used to edit Golf Magazine. And in July 1982, he was at Royal Troon in Scotland for the Open Championship. It's a long time ago now, but one particular memory has stuck with him. He was in the clubhouse. Like the main room, I think they probably called it the smoking lounge in those days. It was a big picture window that looked out onto that 18th hole, looked right through the green all the way down the fairway. George was in that room, looking out that window, on Friday afternoon, when the leader of the Open was finishing his second round. And he hit a good drive, and I think he had some sort of short iron into the green. And it was pretty weird because uh, you stand in that smoking lounge, look out through the windows, and you see the golfer 150 yards down the, the way, and you see him hit the ball, and then it disappears. It's up there because the ceiling of the, of the room blocks your view, so you have no idea. You saw it get launched. And I will never forget, it just appeared out of the ceiling, so to speak, plump right down on the green, I think fairly close to the hole, too, and the place went nuts. Hit in the hole. And it was pretty clear to everyone at that point that Bobby Clampett was going to win the 1982 Open Championship. Clampett was 22 years old, a Californian with a carefree attitude and a head of blonde curls. Media loved him. And one aspect of the intrigue around him was how he talked about the golf swing. He used this very scientific language and kept referring to a book called The Golfing Machine, which was written by an engineer from Seattle named Homer Kelly. We were very much aware of Homer Kelly and the golfing machine. I still remember sort of a small trim sized book, yellow cover, and all of these geometric lines on it, and trying to read it unsuccessfully like everybody else. And at the 82 Open, Bobby Clampett's play was forcing even the skeptics to take the golfing machine seriously. He shot 67 66 in his first two rounds. I was just on. Every part of my game was on. It was pretty remarkable two days where just everything was going right. That night, he slept on a five-shot lead. Bobby Clampett had been one of the finest junior and college golfers since Jack Nicklaus. But an open victory would have been a moment of validation, not just of the player himself, but also of the science he endorsed. Clampett was truly a product of the golfing machine. So whether he wanted to or not, he had become the first important test case 
for whether it all worked. I'm Garrett Morrison, and this is Fried Egg Stories. Today, the story of Homer Kelly, Bobby Clampett, and the science that they believed would solve the mysteries of golf. So 50 years ago, it took a certain kind of person to get into the golfing machine. And Bobby Clampett just happened to be that kind of person. From the beginning, he was fascinated specifically by the act of hitting the ball. The first time he saw golf being played, Bobby was six, and he was walking around the Olympic Club in San Francisco with his mom and stepdad. And then I saw, I can still vividly remember, I'm pretty sure it was the second hole, and I saw this man hitting what would have been his second shot, most likely, into that par four. And I remember watching the ball and following it up into the big trees. And then it came up and landed on the green. And I just thought, that is the coolest thing ever, hitting that little white ball. It just captured me. It wasn't long after that we moved to Monterey. And my first experience, I kept bugging my mom. I want to learn to play golf. And she was like, yeah, yeah, one more thing. And I said, no, I really want to learn to play golf. Yeah, you said that about tennis and football and baseball and basketball and blah, 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 skiing. I said, no, I, I really want to learn to play golf. What do you think it is about golf that appealed to you so much? You, you mentioned that you played a number of, of different sports, but but golf obviously took on yeah. the status of, uh, of a near obsession pretty quickly uh, with, with you at a young age. Very quickly. So what, what was it about it? I had had some frustrating moments playing team sports. And I can remember times, uh, you know, the kids wouldn't let me play quarterback because of you know, the bullying that goes on in the playground. And I knew I could throw harder, better, faster than any of them could. And golf allowed me that access to be away from, from that. So... I knew very little about the sport, right? In fact, I knew nothing about the sport when I first got into it. So I, I can remember, I loved riding my bike, and I remember riding to the Thunderbird bookstore there at Mid Valley Carmel and engaging the salesperson there on a discussion of, I want to learn to play golf, and what books do you have in the store to recommend to me? And so I came across this book, the lady suggested, How to Play Golf by Sam Snead. And it was almost all pictures. So I went on this little individual pursuit of trying to mimic Sam Snead's golf swing through these pictures. And I would try to stand like Sam Snead and I'd grip it like Sam Snead and I'd try to make a backswing like Sam Snead. And that was always at the forefront of my mind, trying to mimic good swings. When Bobby was about 10, his mother finally gave way. She let him start taking lessons at the local club in Carmel Valley, California, with a pro named Lee Martin. Three years later, Lee left, and a new pro arrived. A pro who would match Bobby's enthusiasm for mastering all the details of the golf swing. In comes Ben Doyle as the new golf instructor 
And I remember in our first meeting, he says, well, let me take a picture of your swing. And he had a Polaroid graph check camera, one of those old cameras with the eight frames, you know, in sequence. And he started taking some pictures of my swing. And then we started talking about, and he said, you know, if I were you, I'd try to do this. And, you know, have you ever heard of club ed lag? And you ever heard about the golfing machine? And well, almost immediately, he sold me a copy of the, the golfing machine. And he had me read 1L, the machine concept, right off the bat. And he would use little blurbs, favorite blurbs out of the golfing machine, you know, amplify lag and drag, deliver it down a straight line delivery path, use a four barrel power accumulator assembly. I mean, it was the golfing machine was to Ben what the Bible is to a Christian preacher. So to understand what the golfing machine is and why it inspired such devotion from Ben Doyle and eventually from Bobby Clampett. We have to backtrack a little and tell the story of Homer Kelly. Uh, my name is Scott Gummer, and I am the author of the book Homer Kelly's Golfing Machine, The Curious Quest That Solved Golf. Let me phrase the question this way. If Homer Kelly's life were a movie, where would that movie start? I'd probably start on the first day he played golf. Uh, it was 1939. He scored 116, and he didn't have much fun. So he quit playing, uh, didn't play again for six months. And then someone asked him to go back out, and he went out, and he shot 77, which he could not understand. Like, what happened that I was able to, what did I do differently? He was a, a, just a very inquisitive guy by nature and thus began his quest to figure out uh, golf. Okay. Well, Garrett, I am Joe Daniels. I am the owner of the Golfing Machine copyright, which I purchased from Mrs. Kelly back in 2002. When I asked Joe Daniels to give me an idea of what Homer Kelly was like, he tells me two stories. The first is about how Homer installed a basement in the house where he and his wife lived in Seattle. He didn't hire somebody to do it. He dug it out himself. And in order to support it, what he did was Interstate 5 was being built through downtown Seattle. And so they probably had to knock down quite a few buildings and all those buildings were made of bricks. So he went down put a bunch of bricks in the back of his car, drove them home, took them out, went back, got some more. And those bricks are what he used to support his house when he dug out the basement. The second story is about how Homer learned to play piano. Not surprisingly, he taught himself. But it was all built upon the scales. So he didn't really play songs. He was all about the scales. And so very mechanical, right? It has to be like this. So he definitely was a character that relied on his intellect and his intellect always kind of moved to, if you will, golfing machine words, the geometry and physics of things. And so when he set out to learn everything about the golf swing, he did so in a very Homer Kelly-ish way. His first step was to visit some teaching pros in the Seattle area and ask if they could explain why he shot 116 in his first round and 77 in his next one. In other words, if they could explain one of the central mysteries of golf, 
why good players are sometimes bad and bad players are sometimes good. Whatever the pros told him, Homer didn't buy it. I think golf instruction then was very much like golf instruction is now, that a lot of people talk about the feel of golf, they're a feel golfer, and that was not what Homer, that didn't compute in his scientific mind. So Homer just figured, gotta do it myself. I just think the word quest is really is really appropriate. He just really felt like the other people that were teaching the games, the pros, the swing doctors and things like that, didn't lack desire or sincerity. What Homer said is they lacked information. And one of the things that he said was, all we need is a little definitive information. I think that's what drove him. It just took a really long time. Homer started gathering his information in the early 40s, and he self-published the first edition of his book, The Golfing Machine, in 1969. Its subtitle was Geometric Golf, The Computer Age Approach to Golfing Perfection. If, if you were to summarize the contents of The Golfing Machine, I mean, essentially what that book contends and what it contains, what would you say? Actually, I find that to be a pretty easy question. And the answer is there is no one way. Unlike Jack Nicklaus, whose book is called Golf My Way, Homer's book should be called Golf Your Way. Basically, the book breaks down the golf swing into a bunch of different components and variations. And it says, here, choose some of these pieces, assemble your own golfing machine, and make sure it sends the ball where you want it to go. If you're able to stand behind the golf ball and he makes a statement, visualize what you want the golf ball to do. And then his words are set up the machine that creates that ball flight, then you can do it. And I think sometimes the golfing machine scares people because it has choices. It doesn't say you have to do this. It only says you have to have a flat left wrist, club head lag, club head lag pressure point, actually, and a straight plane line. Three things. It shouldn't be so hard, should it? <laughs> what can be hard is actually reading the book. Um, could you introduce yourself by name and what your relationship is to me? I'm Michelle Morrison, and I am your wife. I would like you to read starting here. 4D0 release motions. This term refers to the release of accumulators, number two and number three. So it is not a pattern. Homer's writing style was pretty, I mean, it, 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 is a, it is effectively a textbook. The Golf Machine book is written just like a textbook. I don't, I don't even know that he had an editor. I mean, except maybe his wife. You have to commit to reading the Golf Machine. Uncocking 4-B. Dash three and roll four dash. Um, what are what are your reactions to what you just read? It's like a space manual. I don't know. <laughs> and yet, working through it, I found it to be really satisfying. It's it's a little bit. I mean, it's a little bit. I guess in a weird way, like once you learn to conjugate verbs in a different language, then it kind of just puts you to a place where things start making sense. 
And so when someone says, you know, why did Mr. Kelly write it this way? I say to myself, well, I don't think there was a different way he could have written it. It's how he thinks. And you either can glean from that or you cannot. But beneath Homer Kelly's dense technical prose, and beneath his findings about the geometry and physics of the golf swing, there's a kind of philosophical conviction. And that's this. Golf is not an art. It's not a grand mystery. There's no spiritual component. There is just the machine, the golf swing. You build it, and it either works or it doesn't. And if you shoot 116 one day and 77 the next, you won't find the reason in feel or character or the so-called mental game. You'll find it in science. That's what Homer Kelly believed. And the question was whether the golf world would believe him. Season two of Friday Stories is made possible by Precision Pro Golf. Can you imagine if Homer Kelly and Bobby Clampett had had access to a Precision Pro rangefinder in 1973? They would have loved it. My current rangefinder is the Precision Pro NX9 Slope, and it's fantastic. I love the pulse vibration feature, especially. It gives you this little buzz when you lock onto the flagstick, which really allows you to have confidence that you're getting the right number. And here's what the surprising thing was for me. Precision Pro rangefinders are more affordable than their competitors. So you're getting an industry-leading device, one that's simply going to do what you need it to do, and you're getting it at a very reasonable price. So if you're looking to step up your game, you can get an extra $20 off any Precision Pro rangefinder by going to precisionprogolf.com and using the coupon code FRIEDEGG20. That's FRIEDEGG20 at precisionprogolf.com. Um, the golfing machine, the first edition, comes out in 1969, I believe. Uh, how would you characterize the initial public reception of this text? Well, there wasn't any. <laughs> well, the golfing machine, when it was published, Homer self-published it, and he had a handful of books made. And, you know, he tried to get people to have a look, have a listen. Homer even held a 10-week class for local teaching pros. But let's face it, the professionals at the time that came to that class were all guys who basically would say, well, you got to learn how it feels. You got to go out there and hit a bazillion balls. And this is what you've got to do. So by the end of the class, most of the students were gone. Turns out it wasn't easy for Homer Kelly to convince people that golf was a science and that science could solve golf. It's just very thick in terms of trying to process that information. And so really, as the visionary, what Homer needed was someone who could teach it. He needed a disciple, as it were, to take the message out. Uh, and he found that uh, with a local pro uh, named Ben Doyle. Ben was the head golf professional at Broadmoor in Seattle. And uh, if you've never been to Broadmoor, it's a little strange. So the entrance to the Broadmoor Golf Club is on a road that dead ends at basically a park. So the public can go all the way to this park, just can't go in past the gates, right? So Mr. Kelly would sit in the parking lot and watch Ben teach. And so from there, when Mr. Kelly finally got the book published and brought it to Ben, you know, they spent six hours talking and Mr. Kelly explained how he traced the golf swing through all of these things. And 
you know, Ben being able to ask almost any question he wanted was probably the icing on the cake there. I mean, we're not having this conversation if Homer doesn't connect with Ben. I mean, that's just, it, you know, Homer would have had a book like a lot of people that self-publish their books and that never just quite get elevated. Um, Homer needed Ben to take the message to the masses. But to get it to the next level, they needed someone who could actually execute it, who could do it. And, you know, that was Bobby Clampett. Uh, well, Ben was a, a very unique individual, first of all. He had a very unique way of delivering information. It was more about sharing with you the principle and then letting you discover it for yourself. We hit it off right away. And he saw me as a very inquisitive little kid that really wanted to learn and he saw that I was coming out there every single day. It didn't matter. Rain, shine, snow. After school, I was there seven days a week working on my game. It's worth noting that Bobby was dealing with some tough things at this time. He was living with his mother and stepfather. And his biological father, Robert Clampett, had been part of his life. But Robert was an older man, 66 when Bobby was born. And in 1972, he died. Bobby was just 12 years old. It was about a year later that Bobby met Ben, and they went into overdrive on Bobby's golf swing. He, uh, I'll never forget, he, he wanted to teach me the principle of club at lag, which is one of the real foremost principles in the golfing machine. They were building houses along the driving range at that time. This would have been 1973. But the lot next to where Ben was teaching was vacant. And there was some very tall grass, probably foot to two feet tall grass, and he said to me, he says, I got a homework assignment for you. And what's that? He says, I want you to take your five iron and I want you to go into that lot and I want you to swing in that lot and apply what I've just taught you about club ed lag. I want you to swing in the long grass until all the grass is gone. And it's a you know a half acre lot. So there's plenty of grass out there. And it took me about two weeks of swinging and I got through all the grass and then he said, now I'm going to take your picture of your swing on the GraphJet camera. And it was quite a transformation where all of a sudden I had learned club head leg. And my handicap almost immediately went to like four. And then by the time I was 15, it was scratch and I won my first national junior tournament. Bobby was always going to be a tour player. No two ways about it. He is a talented golfer. What the golfing machine was able to do for him was, what do they say, separate the wheat from the chaff or whatever it is that they say, right? And so he got the meat of the subject and just left all the other stuff that was irrelevant behind. Well, there were a lot of principles in there. Uh, I'm just thinking, you know, law is cause. There are no enigmas or mysteries to the game anymore. The ball goes exactly where you hit it every time. So in the game, if you ever hit an errant shot or a shot that didn't go where you, you wanted it to, you should never have to say, well, why did it go over there? If you ever say, why did it go over there? You just don't understand law's cause. And Ben was, was of the mindset that there's no mystery here. And he would constantly be reinforcing that in his teaching with me. 
those were some of the, the principal moments of working with Ben and making some radically big changes in my swing that took a while for them to solidify. But once they started to kick in and it started to become more a part of me, uh, my game started to hit into some pretty cool strides. Bobby Clampett was one of the greatest amateur golfers ever. He was, ju he was just really, really good. I think I knew my swing very well. And I knew that if I hit a poor shot, I could immediately diagnose why and fix it right on the spot. You know, I think back to 1978 in the Western Amateur. You know, I'd already won the Cal State Am and I'd already won numerous other amateur tournaments that summer. And I'm in the finals of the Western Am. I had missed already four fairways or five fairways, four fairways in a row. I was two down after six holes and just won the hard seventh hole with a par to pull one down. And I had the honor on the eighth hole and they surprised, I was playing Mark Wiebe from San Jose and they had surprised both of us and they'd moved the tee way forward on this short eighth hole to where it was drivable. But it was a tight fairway, maybe 10 yard opening and a river to the right and big trees and just terrible stuff to the left. And I hadn't hit a fairway yet, but I remember thinking about, I, I kind of tuned into something that reminded me of why I was hitting the ball to the right. And so I uh, made that tiny little adjustment. And I remember I hit this absolute perfect drive 10 feet from the hole and ended up having, uh, Mark gave it to me for an eagle as he had already made par and it tied the match and I went on to win. That was a real pivotal situation, but I, what enabled me to have the confidence after missing so many shots already, that was the thing that I think was the separator for me and the others playing amateur golf and college golf in those days that I could do that. And that's what kept me so consistent. was able to amass the information, filter it down into his procedure, as we would call it, and make it work on the golf course in front of everyone. And there's the proof in the pudding right there. And so now all of a sudden, you can learn golf from a book. It was in the summer of 1978 that Bobby Clampett became famous, and so did, to a lesser extent, Ben Doyle, Homer Kelly, and their system. That August, Golf World magazine ran a cover story called Bobby Clampett and the Golfing Machine. Bobby told the reporter, I wouldn't be winning these tournaments if it weren't for that book. Someday that book is going to change all the theories of swings. It's inevitable. He went on to say, it's the Bible of golf. It's nothing to be laughed at. And the article concluded, don't worry about that, Bob. Nobody's laughing now. That brings us to the 82 Open Championship, when Bobby Clampett, the face of the golfing machine, sticks his approach on the 18th hole at Royal Troon. He takes a five-shot lead into the third round, and seems like he's about to prove everything that he and Homer Kelly have been saying about the science of golf. That night, he calls Ben Doyle and tells him, I might walk away with this tournament. I've done it before. Saturday afternoon, the winds at Royal Troon have shifted. So off the first tee, Bobby decides to go with less than driver. And I hit a perfect three iron just laying up off the first tee downwind and it 
hit in the middle of a fairway and it kicked 40 yards left into a lip of a pop bunker. It's like, what's that all about? That is so weird. That doesn't happen. But he's able to refocus and on the fifth hole has a 40-footer for birdie. He rams it in. The crowd roars. He pumps his fist. Bobby Clampett has a seven-shot lead at the Open. And his golfing machine is in full flight on the international stage. Yeah, and and that was kind of fun. But then it was the very next hole that I got stuck in the pop bunker and couldn't get out. <laughs> uh, fist pump was a little early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I mean, getting to the sixth hole, right? That was That was the, you know, if you're looking back, maybe the turning point. Um, you know, uh, what was the experience of that hole like for you? I mean, okay. I pulled the tee shot, maybe 12 yards left of my target. So it wasn't, wasn't my best tee shot, but it wasn't one that was, you know, off the charts. Nothing was really that bad about it. Mm -hmm. And I got up there and thought, you know, I can hit sand wedge out here. I just need to hit the ball about, about 60 yards. If I can hit it 60 yards, then I can reach the green in three. It was a par five. And if I can reach the green in three, I still might get on and be putting for birdie. So I grabbed my sand wedge and I hit it and thought I hit it pretty good, but it just hit the top of the lip of the bunker and came back in. Now I got the same shot. I go, I know I can get it over the lip of that bunker. So I did it again. Now I'm like, okay, now I know I can't get it over the lip of the bunker. Now I just hit it out sideways. So I hit it out sideways. And then I, I thought, all right, now... Now, if I really hit a big three wood, I might be able to get it to the front edge. So I'm really going to jump on this one. And I duck hooked it over into the gunk. And that's going left. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. It clatters through the crowd and clamp it in all sorts of trouble. <laughs> and ended up with a triple bogey. After Bobby holes out, he turns, looks back at Royal Troon's sixth hole and sticks out his tongue. <laughs> that's funny nobody's ever mentioned that but i do remember doing that and and i would do that sometimes on a head of battle i just say i don't like you anymore yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on to the next goal <laughs> but the bad shots and the bad bounces keep coming the 10th hole is especially puzzling the day before bobby hit a perfect three iron to three feet today he hits what feels like the same shot with the same club but this time it comes up short and he makes bogey. So before you know it, I shoot, what did I shoot? 78, six over that day. And the next day was more of the same kind of stuff. I was just a little bit off, not quite as sharp tee to green and bocce putter. And this thing's not going my way. He finishes in a tie for 10th, four shots behind the winner, Tom Watson. The way Bobby tells it, he pouts for a bit, then moves on. A month later, he wins his first PGA Tour event, the Southern Open, and by all indications, his career is moving in the right direction. But his experience at the 82 Open does plant a seed of doubt about his game. Obviously, his weekend performance wasn't great, but he also keeps thinking about the practice rounds he played at Troon. Tuesday, I shot 65 in a practice round playing with Gary Player and Johnny Miller. And then Wednesday, I went out and shot 75. And... I I was going through a period where my game was more inconsistent, more, it's like just a little something off and man, it could be 10 shots from one day to the next. 
And it was it was driving me crazy because it was like it's just not that far off. How can it be? How what, what's going on there? So Bobby finds himself struggling with the same problem, the same mystery that started Homer Kelly on his quest 40 years earlier. How can I play so well on Tuesday and so poorly on Wednesday? So it led me down some more roads to discovery of how can I find a swing that isn't quite so temperamental, maybe. And I think that started, uh, unfortunately, kind of a rabbit hole for me. 1983 ended up being a low point, not just for Bobby Clampett, but for the whole golfing machine enterprise. And it really was an enterprise at that point. Ben Doyle had a growing stable of students. Homer Kelly had set up a process for educating and authorizing instructors. But in 83, Homer Kelly, who was 75 years old by then, had a falling out with Ben Doyle. Joe Daniels isn't totally sure why. The, the, the first and utmost honest thing to say is I wasn't there. And I need to make that completely clear. So I really am not aware of exactly what created that issue. There was one. I think it unfortunate, Ben being angry with Homer, Homer being disappointed in Ben. Just both sides lost. There was no winner in that. And then, in the middle of a seminar with the Georgia PGA, Homer Kelly collapsed and died of a heart attack. Bobby couldn't go to his funeral because he had to be in Australia, where he was battling with his suddenly defective golf swing. In the 83 season, Bobby didn't finish in the top 10 once, and ultimately he decided to part ways with Ben Doyle. I became influenced and was led to believe that if I totally changed my swing, uh, I wouldn't have some of these temperamental issues with my swing, so to speak. And I went to four different coaches, uh, all big name coaches, and they were all great and wanting to work with me. But the thing that uh, they all said, well, basically your swing sucks and we got to make some major changes. And I had one say to me, I have more moving parts than an erector set. And uh, another one say to me, you better forget about anything you've ever learned about the game and start all over. One of these coaches, in fact, the one who made the erector set comment was Jimmy Ballard. Hey, Gary. Hi, Joe. How are you? Uh, sorry, Jimmy. How are you doing? I was just talking to a Joe. My bad. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> listen. I do that all the time, so forgive me. <laughs> Jimmy has worked with, among others, Hal Sutton, Curtis Strange, Sandy Lyle, Savvy Ballesteros, and for one day, Bobby Clampett. I got a phone call from Bobby's mother and stepfather. He was coming to play at Doral, and they told me that they would like for me to take a look at him and work with him. It was tournament week at Doral, so a bunch of Jimmy's players were out there. I was working with one of the players at the time, and I told him, go ahead and get Bobby filmed, and I'll be ready in about 15 or 20 minutes. Well, I waited a little while after I'd finished. They still didn't come into the viewing room, so I I sent for them, and they came on in. And the reason they were so long, my assistant told me, he said the reason we were so long, he said he topped the first five or six top balls, just topped them with a five iron. The conversation between Jimmy and Bobby quickly turned to the golfing machine. So I said, well, what is it you think is right about? And, and he starts telling me all this stuff. And finally, I just said, look, Bobby, wait a minute. If, if you're right and all this you're telling me is correct, why did you top five or six five irons out there a while ago before you hit one in the air? And there was no answer. 
Eventually, as Jimmy remembers it, Bobby walked out, and they never worked together again. Yeah, and, and you know, here, here's the thing about the golf machine. The proofs in the e- eating of the pie, the golf machine, that's been around for a long time. How many majors have been one with anybody that said, I'm working on the golf machine? <laughs> I mean, how many? I have over 15 major winners, if you count the TPC, and it works. I mean, I found my players, I give them one and maybe two thoughts. And the one thought would be the backswing and a finish. But you can't give them two backswing thoughts. How could you do that? <laughs> you can't think that quick and swing the club 100 miles an hour. So you, you can't go out there with all these, I'm going to do this and this and this and dot your eyes and cross the T's. That's what it appeared to me the golf machine made Clampett do. And that's when he got mechanical, and that's when he couldn't, he couldn't get through the ball at all. What would you say to people who at this time were blaming the golfing machine for your struggles? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that would be like uh, you're in journalism now, so you, you write articles, right? Yep. That would be like somebody saying, you're too into the alphabet. <laughs> you're t- <laughs> So Bobby ended up coming back to Homer Kelly's ideas. And while he was never again a consistent factor on the PGA Tour, he did have some good seasons on the senior circuit. Today, he's a teacher himself, and he has a book called The Impact Zone, which takes a lot of inspiration from the golfing machine. Bobby's writing is clearer than Homer's, but the principles are basically the same. You can do it in a bunch of different ways. Impact is what matters, and there's no mystery in the golf swing. The ball goes where the club sends it. So as far as Bobby's concerned, his problem in the 80s wasn't the golfing machine. It was going away from the golfing machine. I mean, the hindsight was, there's kind of an old adage, if it's not broke, don't try to fix it. And probably would never have been a number one in the world player with my old game and old swing, but I would have won a lot more than one tournament on the PGA Tour. I'm convinced of that. Look, it would have been great for Bobby, and it would have been great for the golfing machine, and it would have been great for Homer and Ben. Either if Bobby had gone on to the kind of career that was expected, or if there were others along the way in that time. I mean, if there had been four or five people that were golfing machine advocates, that had been different, but there was Bobby and it didn't work out. We're not robots. And therein lies the the thing that, that, uh, that would always fail with the golfing machine or with any golf instruction method is that at some point, an infallible way of doing things is being executed by the most flawed actor, as it were. It's, it's just, you know, we're human. And science, like this can be perfect in theory. And we don't live in theory, we live in practice. As Bobby Clampett's playing career waned, so did the reputation of Homer Kelly's work. But the golfing machine always had its advocates, including Steve Elkington, a major champion who won 10 times on the PGA Tour. 
And these days, more and more golfers and golf instructors seem to have Homer Kelly's name on the tip of their tongues. Bryson DeChambeau says the golfing machine changed his life. I mean, he says a lot of things, but that's one of them. So for longtime golfing machine people, the 21st century feels something like redemption. They say, look at how science, technology, and data have seeped into just about every aspect of the game, from fitness to course management. You could argue, and many do, that this is the golfing machine era, and Homer Kelly just missed it by a couple of decades. But there are also those who insist that there's still room for mystery in golf, that the game will always be primarily an art. And the conflict between these two points of view, science versus art, is what the writer Brett Sergalis discusses in his book, Golf's Holy War. Uh, which came out in May of 2020 on Simon & Schuster. And the big question for many of us is what to take from both sides, what to learn from science, and what to set aside for art. It's kind of a question that uh, is inside golf as well as outside. I mean, the world in general is kind of going through this revolution of information and data that's at our fingertips. And how do we deal with it all? Uh, How do we reconcile it with uh, the world that we live in? and use it for our betterment is kind of a a really big question, and it's one that's playing out uh, in golf in rather dramatic terms. Just consider the job of a 21st century golf instructor. It wouldn't be right for this professional to ignore the recent science of the golf swing. As Ben Doyle liked to say, truth is truth. They say the numbers don't lie, right? These are indisputable. But how do you create those numbers? How do you do it? How do you change a complex motor pattern? And the more we've learned about learning, the more neuroscience has come in and and explained how we create new memories and how we change our patterns. It's really not through explicit information. So whereas the golfing machine is here is the most it is the most explicit book possible because it is nothing but facts and information and numbers. But the way our brain works, the way we learn as human beings is implicitly, right? So when you start your backswing, how do you start your backswing? You have no idea how you start your backswing. None. You have no idea how you make your fingers move. And if you, if you mapped your brain, maybe you can explain the pathways that enable you to move. But you don't know how you just started that process. So... I mean, the, if once you really think about it, it's very difficult to change something that you don't quite understand. In other words, how do we do what the science tells us to do? There might be some mystery in that. Maybe some small space for art. And Brett tells me that this is the problem that a golf instructor named Mike Hebron ran up against. Hebron is a big golfing machine guy, and he was eager to impart all of Homer Kelly's information to his students. And then he ran into students who weren't getting better. Like every, this happens to every, almost every teacher I talked to had the same experience where they were teaching, they thought they knew all, they thought they knew everything. And then some students weren't getting better. And the ones that really care said, why? So Hebron began to take classes about how people learn. He remained a, a science-driven instructor, but he struck a deal with the art of teaching. Now when he teaches, he has all of the background of the golfing machine. He knows that stuff as well as anybody on the planet, and he never mentions it to a student ever. He has them playing games because he understands that that's how you learn. Essentially, Mike Hebron found his own way of living peacefully within golf's holy war. 
Bobby Clampett has a story he likes to tell that I think encompasses a lot of what we're talking about here. It was 1979, and Bobby, at the height of his amateur career, had qualified for his first Masters. And the aspiring golf scientist was paired with one of golf's great artists, 68-year-old Sam Snead. Pretty cool for an 18-year-old kid to get paired with the man who, in the first golf book I picked up, was How to Play Golf by Sam Snead. And so now I get to play with them. On Friday, they get three holes into their second round. And we had a thunderstorm came, came in at Augusta National, and we had to all go back to the clubhouse. And he said, kid, come with me. So we went into the dining room, and we sat down for four hours, just the two of us, and talked. It was like one of, it was like he was becoming my grandfather. We just sat there and talked and had a great time. And they called us back out on the course after a four-hour delay. We went back out, and we get to the 15th hole, and it's really getting dark. It's like 8.15, and it's dark. And uh, I said, I called him Mr. Sneed. I said, Mr. Sneed, you think we're still supposed to be playing as dark it is? He said, keep on playing, son. You don't stop playing until they come get you. So we get to the 16th hole and it's really dark at 16. You can barely make out the flag stick, almost a little reflection on the water, but it, it's dark. I played 16 and we're heading to 17. And I said, Mr. Sneed, really? I mean, it, I've never played in this kind of darkness before. He said, keep on playing, son. They finish 17 and finally some Augusta members come get them. Uh, it's too dark to play here at the Masters. Uh, we're going to call play for the day. I said, no kidding. So play will resume at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. So I, I, I spend the night thinking about the 18th hole, and I figure that I, I have to par 18 to make the cut. The cut's already been determined. I'm the last group. Everybody knows the cut's going to be at one over, and I'm one over. Bobby comes up with a plan for how he's going to play the 18th hole. He'll hit three wood off the tee, six iron into the green. So in the morning, on the driving range, all he practices are three woods and six irons. But then as he's walking down the hill toward the 18th tee, he sees someone in the distance. Sam Sneed is on the back of the tee, warming up by hitting balls toward Ray's Creek with that famous, dynamic, flowing golf swing. The swing that Bobby had tried to mimic as a kid, using Sneed's book. As I'm walking down and watching him, I suddenly realized, and why I didn't think about this before, I don't know, that every time I'd hit three wood off the tee in the practice rounds, I bogeyed the hole. And so I asked my caddy, I said, what do you think? He says, I don't know, what do you feel like? And I thought about it for a moment, and I got down there on the tee, and I said, give me the driver. And I hit this little perfect butter cut up with the driver between the bunkers, hit an eight iron about 15 feet, and made it for birdie to make the cut in my first master. So that was pretty fun. Today, we might say that driver is the statistically correct play, that the data supports it, right? And it probably does. But for Bobby, in that moment, it seems like it was an intuitive choice, unlocked by something about Sam Snead's golf swing, maybe something to do with feeling and memory, maybe something that science can't really explain. When I run this by Brett Sergalis, he's reminded of another golf instructor he met, someone who was very technically minded for a long time, but 
then suddenly veered in the opposite direction. And he, the way he explained it to me was there are some things that can't be broken down into sequences. So the golf swing is not a sequence of photos. There's something intrinsic about the motion that can't be stopped. It's like stopping a stream, he said. And so you can pick it apart in pieces and show where things are, but that piece doesn't exist without the piece before it and the piece after it. So if that was me watching Sam Snead hit balls in the Rays Creek, I would probably be envious of his tempo, right? You know, it's like watching an artist at work. It's like, could you imagine like watching Michelangelo paint? You see it happening, and it's so much more than each line, each brushstroke of Michelangelo's, right? It's, it's the whole. It's what's happening at that moment, and there's something fluid about that. There's something stream-like about it where you can't stop it. It's just the beauty is in its completeness. This episode of Fried Egg Stories was produced and hosted by me, Garrett Morrison. It was mixed and engineered by Cameron Hurtis, and we had transcript help from Meg Atkins. Lots of books mentioned in this episode. We have Golf's Holy War by Brett Sergalis, The Impact Zone by Bobby Clampett, and Homer Kelly's Golfing Machine by Scott Gummer, and of course, The Golfing Machine itself by Homer Kelly himself. Thanks as well to Joe Daniels, Jimmy Ballard, and George Pepper. By the way, if you stick around after this music fades out, we do have a little extra tidbit from George. We'd love to know what you think of Fried Egg Stories, so feel free to reach out on Twitter or Instagram or leave a rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I I think if you go back and look at the history of the game, particularly at the highest levels, Uh, Many of the best players can be pretty well classified as either mechanics or magicians. Um, And if you look back as far back as Harry Varden, he was very much a mechanic. He wrote this book. He invented the Varden grip. He had very precise ways, a very precise ball striker. A few years later, the main one of the main players is uh, Walter Hagen. He's a very much magician. He said, I, I expect to miss five or six shots every round. Um, and he would, would hit a lot of shots into the rub and blast it out. Further forward, Bobby Jones, a very cerebral mechanical golfer taught by um, Stuart Maiden's very specific swing. And then he went on himself to give uh, some very precise lesson. Going forward from him, Sam Snead, another magician, barefoot boy, and with natural talent, double jointed did everything naturally. The other side of Snead was, of course, Hogan, perhaps the ultimate mechanic. And, you know, Palmer, a magician, Nicholas, a mechanic. You know, th- after that, it gets a little muddled. I think Tiger had it all. Uh, but uh, Bobby, interestingly, had the kind of the spirit of, of a magician and the work ethic of a mechanic. And uh, maybe it didn't suit him. I don't know. <laughs>